Simon Sinek is a New York Times bestselling author and the speaker behind the third most watched TED Talk of all time, How Great Leaders Inspire Action, where he popularized the concept of starting with your why. Simon has advised leaders and organizations in almost every industry, from finance to fashion and even the U.S. military. He's fascinated by people and organizations that impact the world for good, which explains why he and Rick have become close friends. This is Three Things with Simon Sinek. Hello, everybody. Today, I have Brother Simon with me. I am very excited to have a chat with a dear friend. Um, I want to start telling everybody that you and I chat about every six weeks, and no matter the size of the container, uh, we always run out of time. I, I got to tell you, I always leave our conversations with learning something and changing my mind about something. And I can't say that about many friends. So I really want to start the conversation by saying thank you. Thank you for being such a generous friend. Well, the feeling is mutual. Uh, you challenge me in ways few others do and, and, and push me to think about things in ways that I don't usually think about them. So the feeling is absolutely mutual. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really, when I see it coming up on the calendar, I'm like, all right, I, am, I have a deposit day uh, versus a withdrawal <laughs> day. So that's great. Listen, I want to start with your most recent work, um, your work around the infinite game, and you were generous enough to give me an early copy to read really had a profound impact on, on me and therefore Red Ventures. Uh, it is almost like you gave us a framework to explain our why. Uh, and until then, I really struggled to explain our why, and it just gave, gave us the freedom to do that. So thank you for that as well. But I've always thank wanted you. to ask you, since there's no winning in the game of business, I would love to hear from you, what is the purpose of business? Um, so I think the purpose of business is to contribute, to contribute to something bigger than ourselves. I think the purpose of business is the same purpose of, as an individual. Like, what's the purpose of living a life? You know, none of us wants the last balance in our bank account printed on our tombstone. You know, none of us wants uh, uh, the last title we had on, on a business card on our tombstone. We want to be remembered for the kind of person we were in the lives of others devoted mother, loving father. That's, that's a contribution to others. And this is what we talk about, meaning of life. And all a business is, is a, it's a structure. It's a mechanism that we get to use to advance our own purpose. And whether you're an employee working in a company, you want to know that, that your work and your life have meaning. Or if you own the company, you want to know that your work and your life have meaning. And so I think a, a, a business is a mechanism that we as individuals can use to advance a cause greater than ourselves, to contribute to the lives of others at scale that we could never do by ourselves. It's a scaling mechanism. Huh. That's really cool. How about in, if there's no winning in life, do you scale through your kids? Do you scale, what, where do you scale? So, it's, so life, like our lives, our lives are finite. There's a beginning, middle and end. We born, we die. But life is infinite. Life, the yeah. game of life continues with us or without us. It doesn't care if we're in the game or we're out of the game. And yeah. so to live a, a, an infinite life means just that, that we're able to pass on our values, our lessons, our contributions through others. So one way to do it is through children, absolutely. And we all hope that our children become even greater successes and happier than we were. We, we, we want that for our children, that they will, they will carry our torch. Um, and anyone who uh, devotes their life to some sort of social contribution or a business you hope that right. that business continues to keep your flame lit. Absolutely. Um, very often they don't. They go off the rails. Um, a lot of great businesses uh, were founded by inspiring leaders. 
that a generation or two later and a few CEOs later become mechanisms simply to make money. And the original contribution that that founder intended literally gets lost, which I think is, uh, which is actually really sad. You know, Dan and I started this business 20 years ago, and we used to say we wanted to build a company we would want to work for. And we used it for a long time, but it was about, I don't know, three years ago that that started sounding, you know, at best selfish and at best or, or worse, hollow. And what I realized is our company really is meant to really be a place where people can kind of change the trajectories of their careers. And as a result, when, when people used to quit, I would view it as almost like a sign of lack of loyalty. And now I view it like a sign of graduation. Right? And my hope is that we can keep you busy enough, challenge enough, engage enough that you stay here a lot longer than you meant to. But that over time, this is just a place we all pass through. And that has really freed me up uh, to like be like, okay, well, I'm happy for you if, if it's good for you, right? But so I, again, your work has really impacted me in ways that you don't understand. Well, and that's very infinite minded, right? Uh, uh, to view someone else's life as a journey and that their journey may pass through this stage and they'll, then they'll move on. Eventually, everyone's going to move on from the company anyway. Uh, they'll retire or, or something will happen and they'll, they'll move on. You know, they'll, their, yeah. their family will move and they can no longer work there. There's all kinds of circumstances. And I, I love that. That's so infinite minded that, that we don't expect that someone give us their entire life anymore, but rather that, they, that they're, it's just part of their journey and hopefully yeah. an enriching part. I love that. You know, um, early on in the pandemic, I asked you to come and talk to, uh, to our team. And, and it was a very important kind of moment. We were seeking for stimuli, but you said something uh, at the time that you said, listen, crisis, something to the crisis is a great revealer, right? To, to leaderships. Yeah. And, 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 and yeah. you know, when we hung up with talking to you, we, we took that to heart and, and it really became a rallying cry for us. Who is it revealing? Uh, and, and what became a health crisis became a, you know, re, you know a social justice crisis. It became a, a bunch of different crises, an economic crisis. So I'm really curious. Now looking back, while it's not over, it does feel like it's starting to get behind us a bit. At least, in the US. at least in the US, what did yeah. the crisis reveal about your organization and more importantly about you personally? So about our organization, um, I, I learned a couple things that I was proud to see and a couple things that I knew I had an opportunity to change. Um, the, some of the things that I was proud to see is that we, we had a, a, a good culture, um, a stronger, you know, you never really know how strong these things are until you're tested. You, know, you don't really know how strong your relationships are until they're tested. You don't know how the quality of a crew until you hit a storm. Um, right. You know, sailing in calm waters is fun and easy. Um, and so I was, I was really, you know, you know, sort of you wait and you're like, I've, I've been doing all the work. I hope this works. And I was really proud of how uh, our, our culture was able to withstand stress and tension. It was able to uh, maintain empathy. Um, we were able to reorganize. Like one of the funny things, like I, I've spent time with the U.S. Marines and there's this right. funny thing that people misunderstand about military culture, which is they think it's always command and control, do as I say, don't question my orders and all this. And that's not how it is. And what, a, what, a, what a, one of a Marine, a young Marine officer explained to me that we build relationships and we build trust in peacetime or back at home station. 
when it's calm and we're in control of all the environments. But when we go to war, absolutely, there is a time and, and place for command and control because you need to have somebody organizing everything. And he says, the reason it works is because if I hadn't built the trust during the calm, during the peace, then people wouldn't listen to me, they wouldn't trust me. But they know that I, if I ask for something yeah. in extreme stress, that they will follow my orders knowing that I would never put their lives at risk needlessly. Yeah. Um, and, and so there is a time for command and control. Um, and what we started to see was, you know, we became a lot harder. It wasn't, it was, I even, I remember saying to the team, hey, I know that we're all sort of like, talk about our feelings. And if you're having a hard day, let's talk about it. I'm like, I believe that, but I need to put that on pause right now. Like if, if I say something that's a little uh, rough because of the stress that we're under, I absolutely want to talk about it, but we're going to talk about it in two weeks, right? right? Because right now we have to do something. And I was amazed how well the, the culture accepted that. Um, uh, because of the trust we had built. So I was really proud of that. Some of the things that um, were that needed to change, business model. Um, and I'm not just talking about responding to the pandemic. Um, we had a yeah. business model that, that, that had to change and had to change for years prior. And, the, the, and, it, was, and it became starkly clear, even though we kind of knew it, um, yeah. because the crisis is the great revealer. And, and so we, we, we took the opportunity to make that change. It's almost the analogy of these boats being out of the water that were not meant to be out of the water, right? So you get to see them in their hole and you're like, oh my right. goodness. <laughs> right. You're like, how did this thing ever stay afloat? Let's patch that up right now. <laughs> exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, I, there's so much to that word trust. Uh, it, it is a core of every relationship, but I think it's really the, the, the DNA of a true culture and, and really being thoughtful about, you know, you, you can't microwave trust. Uh, that's why you can't microwave a culture. And it is thousands of actions over long periods of time. Um, you know, do you, do you teach or do you, you talk a lot about how to build trust in an organization? I mean, the funny thing is, is we know how to do it. That's the funny thing. Um, uh, like, you know how to make a friend, you know, it's, you, you, you know how to be in a relationship, um, um, which is, as you said, it's not like, well, how do I fall in love? It's like, well, you have to remember their birthday. You have to buy them a gift on Valentine's Day. It's like, and if you do those five things, they're not going to fall in love with you, even though those things are really important to do. It's the little, little things that by themselves are completely innocuous. You know, saying good morning before you check your phone. When you get yourself a cup of coffee, you bring them a cup of coffee without even asking. They're having a bad day. You had a great day. And you can't wait to tell them about your great day. And they said, I had a bad day. And you put all of your excitement aside and you listen to their bad day. And it's these little things that by themselves do absolutely nothing. As you said, they add up um, and everyone's different. Some people can trust quickly and some people trust slowly, but everyone can trust. Okay. And one of the things I'm fascinated by, when you think about your friends who have the best relationships, the best marriages, and you, you, you say to them, what's your secret? And they almost all say the same thing, which is, it's a lot of work, yeah, right? Yeah. Like the best relationships actually aren't easy. The best relationships require constant attention. And I think very often we think of building trust as an event. Well, I did that for you and now you will trust me, right, right, but it's right. not, it's brushing your teeth. It requires constant attention. You need to keep doing it. Yes, yeah. you can skip one night because you're too tired to do it. You're okay, but you can't skip too many nights. And no yeah. dentist can tell you how many you should or shouldn't skip. 
it, right. it, it's, it's a constant thing. And I think trust is exactly the same. And whether you're doing it with a friend or you're doing it at work, it's, it, or you're doing it with a customer or a client, it's, yeah. it's all the same relationship. It's human. You know, and, and you see it in our basic instincts. We, we, just, um, we just took in, you know, another stray dog. So we rescued a dog. It's our second one. We, and, uh, and he came from the streets. He'd been on the streets for four months. He'd been kind of in, in between for a month. And there was no trust for the first couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden, you can see him starting to trust humans. And, and then once in a while, he reverts back. But then, you know, he comes back. And it is such an instinctive thing for us as humans. It's the same thing. You're watching, you know, an animal do it in trust. Humans, we do it exactly the same way. And, and I think it's such a great analogy. Because as you give love to the stray dog, that you don't really know its full story right? You don't right. know the kind of abuse that experience, you don't know, but right. you commit yourself every day to giving that dog love with no expectation of anything in return. You will never quit giving the love. And it's the same. I think one of the mistakes that people make is they treat it like an, a, like a, like an equation, um, which is I've given you seven things and you haven't given me back anything yet. Right. And again, you, you show up with constant love um, in, in, in order to build trust. That doesn't mean that you discover that the relationship can flourish. You can definitely discover that this won't work, but, 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 but it, you do it with, with the desire to build trust. And yeah. I, I had a great conversation just recently with Tim Shriver, uh, who he just became a, a grandfather for the third time. And like the baby is days old, you know? Yeah. And he said to his daughter, uh, uh, Rose Shriver, what do you hope to learn? And she said, I hope to learn what, whatever it takes to make this baby feel completely loved. And I was so struck by that. Yeah. Um, where so often we show up in the world to be loved, but we don't put the effort in to do the extra effort to make someone else feel loved. And she used the word learn. I hope to learn that none of us, though our sense of belonging is innate, right. uh, our, the, 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 the skills that it takes to build trust, those are, those are learnable, practicable skills. And they require just that. They require practice, constant, constant engagement. And if you don't use them like a muscle, they atrophy. But I, I, I think the idea of taking oneself on the journey to learn the skills of trust is sort of, sort of basic requirement of every, of every human being. Like we, we take it upon ourselves to learn those skills for the good of those around us. That's interesting because it's a topic that is not studied as much as some of the other topics. Um, you know, this whole notion of trust, you know, I, you reminded me, you know, my mother, um, you, you know, my mother passed away in December and, you know, she was, you know, the, the more separation I get from her, the more I realize how much I learned from her and the much she impacted, you know, my philosophy of life. And she said that, you know, you know, we only learn to, to not think of ourselves when we have our true first meaningful relationship, right? Because our whole lives, you know, the, 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 the terrible twos is me, me, me. And then, you know, through teenagerhood is the separation. It's all about this like uber fixation in ourselves. And then once you fall in love, you're like, huh, there's somebody else I'm trying to please. So, so it's absolutely a learned behavior, Right. And it's it's uh, it's something that we definitely get better. It sounds like you're getting into uh, relationship counseling here. I think you got some some good thinking for a book, Simon. The and I think in business, unfortunately, we give short shrift to the to those skills. I mean, think about how we talk about it in business. We talk about hard skills and soft skills. 
That's you know, true. first of all, we call those skills soft, right? Yeah. Like they're mushy. And second of all, hard and soft are opposites, right? They don't work together. Those are opposing things. And I think we have to stop using the word soft skills. It, 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 um, it delegitimizes these skills. There are hard skills, which are the skills you need to perform your job. And then there's human skills, which are the skills you need to be a better human being. And to be a thriving member of any team, you need hard skills and human skills. And it's a company's responsibility to help you learn both. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, let's go to a little bit of your earlier work. And you know, I know that it looks like increasingly employees are expecting employers to align to their broader whys, right? You're seeing recently, you know, a number of companies have taken an aggressive stance on certain things and have, you know, you know, a lot has ensued and vice versa. Um, what do you, what advice do you have for leaders as, as, as now they become more than just running a business, they're really representing a broader platform for themselves and for their employees? It's, it's not a good, bad, right, wrong. It's just the, it's just the evolution of, 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 of how things have gone. And, you know, in the past, if you go back to maybe the 50s or the 60s, you know, work was something that you did to make a living and put food on the table. And that sense of camaraderie and belonging and community came from other places. Um, you were involved in, in a bowling league or you were more active in church or there were, there were community things that happened outside of work that we got our sense of belonging and work was just work. And for various reasons, which you know we can go down that rabbit hole, those other things um, have become less important in our lives. Some of them have even disappeared. Um, the, the external clubs and the, the, the Shriners and these things that we would join, they're right. basically gone. And so now, People are coming up through life and they're asking our companies, they're asking our jobs to fill all of those, those gaps, which is I want my sense of belonging from work. I want my sense of uh, uh, contribution and meaning to come from work. I want my sense of sort of the feelings of goodwill and trust. And I want it all to come from work. And it's, it puts massive new pressures on, on a company leader. And again, it's not a question of whether you like it or you don't like it. It's the world changes and culture changes. And this is one of those changes. And, um, and companies can do a better job of responding to that, like teaching uh, some of those human skills. Very few companies do an effective job of teaching things like listening, empathy, how to have a difficult conversation, how to give and receive feedback, how to have an effective confrontation. These are skills. These things are not included in our performance reviews. Your production is included in your performance review. Um, and so if you wanna have a culture that's more people focused and you wanna attract people who are looking for that, then we have to make some adjustments to the manner in which we train our people and the manner in which we measure our people. It's so interesting. We, like everybody, we do our, our survey on our culture and, and the one question that stands out, at least personally for me that I track the most is, do I feel like I belong? Right? And then there's the, that, that is such an encompassing question, but it is all around this, right? It's, yeah. it's you know, the, the, I, think, I think companies, uh, it, it, it would be interesting in this world of hybrid work, right? Um, where the rules of engagement will completely get rewritten. And, you know, I think it's, it, it's been too long and too many people are gonna kind of go in that direction that if you don't adapt, you're dead, 
no talent yeah. is going to go work for you. Yeah. This is yeah. all going to get redefined. I think there's so much interesting here because it, then it makes it even harder in a, in a non kind of central place. It's true. And I, and I, I have a simple test for belonging in an organization, um, which is the, the swag test. And I don't know if you and I have ever talked about this before, no. but you know, um, when a company is a values-based organization, then their symbology, their logo um, is infused with those values. Like if you see a flag, you see the American flag, it's infused with certain values and you either find yourself aligning with those values or not. You find yourself drawn to those and feel like you belong in that, in that space or you don't. Um, and, a, and a company logo is the same thing, which is hopefully if the company stands for anything, for, stands for something, that, that, that logo is infused with meaning. Um, and so when you give swag, uh, you know, if you give somebody a t-shirt with your logo on it, the question is, do they paint the house in it or wear it to sleep in? Or do they wear it with pride to the barbecue? Um, <laughs> right. And if they wear it with pride to the barbecue, it's because they see themselves, they, they see this symbol as representative of who they are. And it's one of the tangible ways in which they can represent to the world um, what they stand for and attract people who believe what they believe. That is very interesting. Listen, I want to give people a little bit uh, of a more intimate insight into you, given our, our, our conversations. Um, and, and in many ways, I feel like similar to Red Ventures, we've been in this constant journey of evolution. For me, when I talk to you, it feels like you're equally personally in a constant journey of evolution, right? Uh, is that right? Am I right? And, and, you know, where does that come from? And, 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 and how, do you th how do you think about it personally? I mean, I hope I'm evolving. Uh, you know, I think I think the the it, it's a choice, right? Um, I think to be open to criticism, to be open to feedback, um, to be open to the idea that I know a lot less than I actually know. Um, um, you know, I think some people call it a growth mindset, but I, I think that word has lost some of its meaning, to be honest. Um, uh, but I, yeah, I. I you know, I have a podcast, which you have been gracious to come on as a guest. And occasionally I spar with some of the people who come on there, you know, where one of us will call bullshit on each other. And I've heard feedback that people are surprised how much I enjoy when somebody says of my work, I disagree. And I love it because I, I go into the world with theories, their ideas, yeah. their observations. They're not facts. They're, 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 and I'm looking for, I want to find all the gaps in my own work so I can fill them or adjust the theory. And I, I can only do that if somebody pushes me. And so I think my evolution would be impossible without people who around me who want to see me and the work that I do continue to grow. So I, I don't think individual evolution is actually even possible without, without friends, of, uh, with friends and people who, who care about the work and care about us. So 10 years from now, kind of non-linear possibilities for Simon Sinek. What, are you, what yeah. are you doing in the world that you'd be like, holy cow, this was that great writer, uh, you know, what was, social psychologist. What are you doing that people were like, I, I, I need to know. You know, if I had predicted any of what I'm doing now 10 years ago, I'd, I'd bottle it and sell it, you know? I have, I have unsuccessfully predicted any milestone in my life. Um, I never thought I'd write a book. 
And after I finished the first one, I thought I was done. And here I am multiple books later. That wasn't in the cards. Every year of my life, I've thought it can't get more surreal than that. Um, and every year has proved me wrong. Um, so I, I, I can't make a prediction as to what path I'm gonna be on and what monuments I'm gonna see, but I do know where I'm trying to get to. Um, uh, I do know the journey that I'm on. Um, uh, I, I wake up every single day with a clear sense of the world that I wanna live in, a world in which the vast majority of people wake up every single morning inspired, feel safe wherever they are, and end the day fulfilled by the work that they do. And I'm completely agnostic as to the route that I take. And I take pains to define myself not by my work. You know, when I blurb the back of a book, for example, I always insist that they put my name as Simon Sinek, optimist and author of dot, dot, dot. Because um, if I no longer write books, then my identity as an author is shaken. What if I never give another speech for the rest of my life, then my, my, my identity. And I think too often we tie our identity to the work. We tie our identity to the prediction. We tie our identity to the path, the route. And I'd rather right. tie my identity to who I am and, and what I'm trying to advance, which is way beyond my lifetime. That is immutable. That won't change. So does that mean government is a possibility? I, I will never run for office, but, uh, but, but, I, but I do. I yeah, do. You can't say I don't know, but know with certainty what it's not. It, it, it's oh, like, I, uh... I know that I don't want that. Uh, uh, you, know, um, the, the, you know, I like working behind the scenes in politics because I, I like bipartisan. I like bringing people together and inherent to running for office, unless I start a third party, uh, inherent to running for office, is to choose a side and right. my work my work for me to get to the place i'm trying to get to that vision that i have it is it is by definition um uh uh unifying so uh so so it actually would go against my vision to to run for office i'm gonna let you go with a non-answer here but that's fine we'll come <laughs> back to this in a different time. i'm not gonna argue with you you're my guest uh, I mean, like, I, I can't make it. I mean, I could say some stuff that won't come true. I mean, if you want me to tell me what, yes, stuff, sure. Yes. What? Uh, so where do I see, see myself in 10 years? No, I, no, no. Tell, yeah, yeah. Go something kind of nonlinear. You know, I, I think the, the one thing that I can, I can say with comfort is that the things that I do now, I won't be doing. Uh, like, I don't think I'll be on the stage giving speeches any, uh, anymore. Um, I doubt that I'll be writing books anymore. And, I, and the one thing that I am comfortable saying is that my, my, my routine and my life will be profoundly different than what they are and have been for the past decade plus. Oh, there's so much to get in there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oh gosh! You can, uh, you and I can have a couch session the next time we. Yeah, talk. we'll have a different couch session on that one. But I was going to predict. I'll give you my prediction for you. Brother. Okay, I want to hear. I it. think well, you are. Go ahead, give Hawaii. me the prediction now. I want to hear it. Give me the prediction. So now. You live in Hawaii. You have three or four kids. Uh, you are an investor, and you know, kind of an advisor to really influential people. And you've just elevated your game and fill it up with a lot of you know, more personal things. 
of all funny. of those things you said, the one that was the most sort of like, hmm, I could see that was an, was a, was a, was a secret or private advisor to some very influential people. All right. So listen, I am one of those that really liked your podcast. It's on my, <laughs> now it's my rotation of favorites uh, and I really like it. Um, Thank you. You have upgraded your guests since you have me. So I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad <laughs> yeah. you practiced with me and then you went up from there. Uh, and, but I really like the purposeful. You're so much better at this than I am. And I really like it. I learned. I'm listening to how you kind of take it around the interview and your production is great. I think my production team is great, but you are like, this is what you do for a living. But the other day you had um, a good friend of yours, General Johnny Bravo. And yeah. I listened to it twice. Yeah. One, you guys clearly have a ton of respect and love for each other. Mm -hmm. But two, there were some things that you guys discussed that were just unexpected for me about what it is to be in the military and the love in the military and, the, and, and, and a lot of things that felt a lot more like business, at least the way I see it. But yeah. first, tell us a little bit about him and your relationship with him. I met... I met JB and that's his call sign. His real name is General Michael Drowley, um, but it sounds weird to say his real name because I only know him by his call sign, which is an, an Air Force nickname basically. And uh, uh, I met JB many years ago and, and um, uh, another airman that I knew was telling me the story of this remarkable pilot who flew in unflyable conditions to basically save the lives of people on the ground. Right. Um, and one thing which I haven't written about and I don't talk about is he actually came home with a bullet hole through his wing. That's how in the fight he was with his plane. Yeah, he came home wow. with a hole in his wing. And, you know, he never got a medal for it. It wasn't, it was about public accolades and he's, he's fine with that. You know, he, I ask him, you know, what's the reward? He says the reward is knowing that he saved the, the lives of these, of these servicemen. And he right. got to meet them and they hugged like brothers even though they'd never met before. And, um, Right after I was told this story, I literally walk into an office and there he is and I got to meet him. And I helped put on a TEDx event um, uh, some, yeah. some time later and invited him to come and tell his story. And from there, he and I developed a, a friendship and a very, very close friendship. And he and, he and I have both been sort of um, confidants to each other. Yeah. And the thing that strikes people about our relationship um, is how uh, is how vulnerable it is, and to me the favorite part of that podcast, and it's fun for me to go listen to it to to hear how we talk to each other because I'm usually yeah. too close. Yeah. yeah, is the last two or three minutes. Yeah, where you can you we you can hear the way we talk to each other, and he, this is a warrior. You know, he yeah. is a, he he yeah. has a courage that you and I don't have. Right. Um, well, I definitely don't have. Um, and, and we say, we say to each other, first of all, he calls me brother, which to come some from in the military, like that's, that's a big deal. Yeah, you know, I call you brother, I'm Puerto Rican. So is that equal or that? Yeah, no, that is the, I mean, the, the question <laughs> is, do you call everyone brother? Um, uh, uh, you know, yes, it means something when you and I call each other brother, because I know there's meaning behind it. Um, but I also know that brother and sister means something very real amongst, amongst that community. Um, and we say to each other when we get off the phone, I love you. Yeah. And we, 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 we talk to each other um, yeah. in a way that I, have, I don't really talk to a lot of um, um, uh, people that way. Yeah. And it's a deep loving relationship and you recognize how comfortable he is 
and, and he said the L word before I said it. So um, uh, the first time you realize how comfortable he is being vulnerable because it's necessary for him to do his job. And you recognize that there's this mutual relationship that courage comes from vulnerability. And the yeah. more vulnerable you are able to be, the more courage you get. And, uh, and he's so, so comfortable. He's so comfortable being himself and expressing his love yeah. um, that, that he is able to do these very, very difficult and remarkable things. And, and those two things are inextricably linked. And I think if somebody lacks vulnerability, I think they lack courage. And that, that was the it of the, of the podcast that got me. It was like, it really was such a, a rare thing to see from such an accomplished military person you know, talking about love and vulnerability as, you know, kind of key leadership attributes. Yeah. He even said something, you know, we say it in business a little bit more like in, in a generic way, we're going to leave the wood pile higher than we found it. It's one of our belief statements. You know, he talks about, you know, you know, giving people back to society better than you found them. And, and I even yeah. like that because if our purpose really is our team and our organization, yeah, you know, he made it about his team. He make it about, you know, kind of broader society, and so good. Yeah, and 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 somebody's family is lending you their child for the time they work for you. Mm. Yes. and you know, and you're gonna, you can, you know, a lot of people who come to our company, like like your like your uh, rescued pet, a lot of people come into our companies abused by previous leaders, and yeah. sometimes that makes them it destroys their confidence. Um, and sometimes um, it teaches them some really bad leadership habits. And so we can, we can actually leave people worse than they came in, depending on the, how we treat them. And so to take the responsibility to, to let them uh, leave our organizations as better versions of themselves, is, it's, it's a serious responsibility. What a, what a profound thought for leadership. And, uh, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to figure out how to embrace that more more deeply for us as an organization all right let's talk about a topic that uh you talk a lot about you you are for sure an optimist but i want to i want to dive deeper into something you know i have lots of friends that are positive people that are not optimists right and, and i talk about you know i have friends that are this way they're like fake positive people because they're not they're not fake they're just you know but they they they, they get sick they do all this stuff their system is kind of in conflict Right, because what they say and what they're internalizing is not the same. Right. You're one of the few people that I don't consider you to be a very positive person. <laughs> to be fair. I'm, I'm, a cynical, I'm a cynical yeah, bastard. You're a cynical bastard. Yes, yeah. yes, you are. And then yeah. you're like constantly kind of, uh, you know, thinking about the, well, the wow, wait, wait, what's going on? But yet you're defined by optimism. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you are literally, if there was a two by two, there's not a lot of people that are in that box. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Tell, um, tell me your definition of optimism, because I, I like I like and, and you had another podcast where this became a really good yeah. banter between one of your guests. But I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. on this. Yeah, I, 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 I think um, optimism is not naive. You know, it's not blind positivity. You know, I think being blindly positive is actually unhealthy. Everything's fine. Everything's good. Everything's going to be fine. And especially when we work for a leader who they're always positive in a bad yeah. situation, we actually feel worse about ourselves because we think there's something wrong. Because if they're able to stay positive in this and I'm not, I'm broken. So it actually backfires very often. <laughs> um, uh, optimism is not naive, nor is it blind. Optimism is the undying belief that the future is bright. 
And so going into something like a pandemic or any challenge in business, you're in a dark tunnel and an optimist acknowledges it. We are in a dark tunnel. This sucks and it hurts and it's painful. And I don't know how long we're gonna be in this dark tunnel. And I do not know how far away the light is, but I know one thing for certain is that I can see the light. I know that if we work together and take care of each other, we will eventually come out of this tunnel and we'll come out of it stronger than we went in. And to me, that's what optimism is. So you, it, I don't see those things as mutually exclusive. I am cynical. Um, yeah. I'm, I struggle to be less judgmental. Um, uh, I am all those things, um, but this is the journey and, 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 and the bumpiness of life. But one thing I'm 100% sure of is I just believe the future is brighter than, than, than the current state. And it is our responsibility to get there. Um, and if we can work well together, we'll get there a little quicker. And that's basically all it is. But yeah, the future to me is always a bright place. And that is absolutely unwavering. You know, I, I think that's one of humans' superpowers. Like if you're able to deliver, uh, de to develop a sense of optimism, by the way, I think you can develop it. I don't think you're, you're born. I agree. I entirely agree. I don't think I was born this way, by the way. What made you this way? I mean, like all of us, we're the sum total of how we were raised and the experiences we had as kids, you know? Um, um, so I have to give some props to my parents, of course. Um, you know, I'm sure they had something to do with this. Uh, um, but I, I, I it, it can be learned. And I think it's, it's I, for me, you know, the introduction to the infinite mindset, the concept of the infinite game, um, uh, which is Dr. Carse's definition, um, you know, that profoundly helped me to recognize that I'm ahead or behind, but I've, I'm, I'm not, a, it's no winning or losing. And the, to recognize that life is a journey that even if most of your life is in darkness, you can still be in pursuit of light. Yeah. Um, you know, Nelson Mandela, Bishop Desmond Tutu, I mean, there was a lot of hardship and darkness and yet their ability to, to say, I, I'm, I survived, I made it through, which is the source of optimism, not, mm. you know, uh, uh, is, is profoundly, is, is profound. Um, my, my sister tried this out with her kids, by the way. You know, yeah. um, when she when I started talking about this concept of infinite game and ahead and behind and no winning or losing. And by the way, I have no problem with winning and losing in a finite game, right? Like there are finite games uh, uh, within the infinite game. Um, you know, you win a piece of business, you win a client, you, you, there's a beginning, middle and end and we know what the metrics are, you know? And we all agree to play by those metrics. Um, that's not what we're talking about here. So my, my nephew is a competitive little kid and he was playing on uh, his, his football team and he was on one of the worst teams and he scored the losing touchdown and, um, uh, and he was angry and aggressive because he's a competitive kid and it doesn't like to lose. And my sister did not dispense the traditional parenting advice. It doesn't matter who wins or loses, what matters how we play the game, you know? Um, which raises the interesting question, well, then why do we keep score? Anyway, um, uh, she didn't say that to him. She said to him, okay, you had a behind day today. And if you work hard, maybe another day you'll have an ahead day. And we've continued that with these kids, which is we don't ask them, did you have a good day or a bad day? We ask them, is it an ahead day or a behind day? And they'll say, they'll say, I'll be like, I'm having a behind day. And what, what that teaches is that, because good and bad sound final. They sound like a verdict. Yeah. Yeah. We're ahead and behind, 
inherently sound temporary. So if you're having a behind day, it will pass. And if you're having an ahead day, don't take it for granted because this too will pass. This too will pass. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to use that with my, with, my, uh, with my teenagers. I'll report back. Uh, I, I, I like that. You know, um, I think there's, there's another topic that it's very personal to me, but there was a sign early on in, uh, that, I, that I had on, on, I don't know, on, on, on my door. And it's, it, it was almost um, optimism, but it really is on the way that I interpret the past. So a lot of people talk about optimism in the future, which I agree with you wholeheartedly. A lot of people are, you know, the, the positive or non-positive is in the present, you know, what, what, how are you reflecting? But I think how we remember life has a lot to do with how we project life. So my saying, it is not mine, I copied it from somewhere. It's like, I have lived through a lot of great things in my life some that have actually happened, right? So it's this notion that like, you know, I, I don't know, I, I tend to remember this life in a, such a, you know, narrow way, but only in the things that I, yeah, you know, if life is our memories and our relationships, why will we not like highlight or, you know, really yeah. promote a really good one? Yeah, it's true. And the, and, and when I help people find their why, I go and ask them the things that they loved in life because they don't remember everything, but they remember the things that matter to them, which is revealing of their personalities and who they are. Um, just like vulnerability and courage, um, I think there's an inextricable connection between the future and the past. I don't think someone can be an optimist without paying reverence to those that came before us. Um, and, you know, uh, the Marine Corps knows this. They drill history into their, into their recruits. Every Marine knows the names of the the heroes from past, they know the, the names and the dates of the battles of past and why those battles were important, whether they were wins or losses. Um, and the reason is, is because in building the future, the Marines invoke the past. You cannot let those who sacrificed before us, let their sacrifice go in vain. It is your responsibility to continue what they have built. And this goes to the idea of legacy and it also goes to the idea of the infinite game that my, my time here is temporary. And though the future is ethereal and lives in my imagination only, right? The future right. Is, is, that's why we call it vision because it lives in your imagination. The past is tangible. Um, and, and, I, and, and research has been done on this, that kids who have a sense of where they came from, like even just knowing where their grandparents are from actually do well in, in life because they don't want to let those who came before them down. They don't want to disrespect their family name. They, have, they feel like they have something to uphold it's not about them. It's about those who came before them. So there's this absolutely that makes total sense to me. Hmm. We're not going to get into this because we have no time, but we definitely have a different view on luck in, in the value of luck. But we'll do that <laughs> in another time. I, I want to ask you a couple of quick hitters um, to, to, uh, to let you go. So what are you reading right now? Um, I have a couple books on my table. Um, I just have one called Alienated America. Uh, it's why some places thrive while others collapse. I'm just interested. Um, uh, and I'm reading another one of Dr. Carse's books, um, which is, uh, it's got a, 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 a very uh, enticing title. It's A Religious Case Against Belief. Um, coming from a theologian, I found that really interesting. That is interesting. Favorite podcast? Um, you know, I, 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 I bounce around, if I'm honest. Like, yeah. I'll listen to an episode here and an episode there as, as people send them to me. Yeah, okay. Last time you changed your mind? I mean, daily. 
I mean, it's something significant. Yeah. You know, vision stuff remains pretty fixed. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I, you know, when I have a meeting, I come in with like what I think are all the answers. So the last time I changed my mind was probably my last meeting. Like I come in with all my answers and I listen to other people's points of views. And very often I think other people have a better point of view than I do. Um, uh, so probably the last meeting I had. Who would you love to have on your podcast who will be hard to get? Oh, um, I, I would love to have, um, um, oh, his, I just forgot his name, of course. Um, the Formula One driver, damn it. He's like the number one Formula One driver in the world from England. His name just escaped me, but him. Him. Yeah, right. I've completely, that's how embarrassing. How embarrassing, how embarrassing. Do you have a, do you have a number two? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Someone you actually know their name? No, I, I, I just, it's one of those things like, you know, all the movies you want to see until you sit down to see them and then you can remember none of them. That's Lewis that's Hamilton. Right Lewis Hamilton. Thank you. you yes. <laughs> thank you. Yes. I would love, I would love to interview Lewis Hamilton. I'm fascinated by, by the dry. I, I don't know if you ever saw the, the documentary Senna about Ayrton Senna, the, the race car driver. No, I did not. Oh, you've got to see it. You'll love it. Okay. Um, so basically, even if you don't like race car driving, yeah. uh, they, the, basically it's these two archetypes, Ayrton Senna, who drives for the passion and the love, and Alain Prost, who drives for the score. And it's so much so that they call Prost the professor, right? And you see the love and loyalty that the other drivers, in a competition, mind you, right? They're all trying to beat each other. How yeah. much they go to bat for Senna because they know, and he loves to win, but he, it's, it's an entirely different mindset. And it's so fascinating to see these two archetypes, the person who plays business to win and the person who plays business because they love the game, they love the play, um, how, how different the relationships are, how different people treat them, how they show up in the world, how inspiring they are, everything about it is so archetypal. Yeah. It's absolutely magical. And so what I wanted to talk to Lewis Hamilton to, to learn more about, about that. We're going to try to find them for you. I'd love that. Uh, biggest guilty pleasure? Um, I have chocolate every single day. Any chocolate? What, what, what is Friday? I have an entire drawer. I have an entire drawer. What's on the A-list? That is filled. I, I mean, I, I'm a, I like dark chocolate, um, but I'm constantly trying new brands. As long as they don't have any soy lecithin in them, I'm good. You know, I'm sort of a chocolate purist. A purist. Um, but... Purist. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, and, and I'm, my guilty pleasure, I think, is also carbs. I do just love everything about bread and stodgy things. I don't know what it is about it. It's just magical stuff. Uh, pandemic has not been easy. <laughs> How about uh, something small that gives you tremendous joy? Uh, my niece and nephew are smaller than me, and they bring me tremendous joy. I know they um, do. Um, you know, I've really, that's, that's been a profound shift for me, you know, with this new COVID life, it is to some degree, I've become a third parent to these wonderful little human beings. Um, you know, they were, they were people I saw every other weekend and would waft in and waft out, you know, and now, now I'm in their life and they're in my life a lot. And when I go away for a few days, like I, I miss them in a, in a, in a way that I've never missed anyone. Um, they, they bring me such immense joy, these little things. That's awesome. And then you can give them back, which is even better. And then I can give them back. Uncle life is the best life. <laughs> <Yeah. clears throat>
All right, dude. Uh, I am very, very grateful. This is a lot of fun. I can do this for hours. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you do. I, I, I love talking to you. That I get to call you friend is, is, is an unbelievable gift. Here are the three things I learned from our conversation. Number one is that the military culture of command is less about control and more about trust. That trust is what ultimately leads people into battle and into many difficult situations. Number two is that the main purpose of a business is to provide a scale platforms for individuals to hone their skills, not just their technical skills, but the soft skills that permeate to everything in life. And number three, I really enjoy his practice around behind and ahead days, not just on how we raise our kids, but perhaps on how we think of ourselves every day in our desire to compete against our version of yesterday. Thank you for listening. Until the next one. Rick shared his three things, but we want to know your takeaways as well. Tweet at Rick Elias to let us know your thoughts on this conversation. And be sure to check out additional content, videos, and more at our blog, threethings.redventures.com. Thanks for listening.